David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the draw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag, in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came out and drew near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I have come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that and all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When this Philistine drew nearer to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. The word of God for the people of God. You can have a seat. Well, it was probably late spring or early summer when the Philistines and the Israelites descended on the valley of Elah to battle each other. There's a lot about this story we don't know. Uh, We don't know why Saul has brought his Israelite army to battle the Philistines to this day, other than that the two nations just lived together and couldn't seem to get along. But we probably know that it is late spring to early summer because a wadi plays a prominent role in this story. A wadi is a seasonal riverbed, and it would have to have taken place late enough in the season for uh, the rains to have stopped and they can go to war, but early enough for the uh, river to still be running. I don't know what it would be like to prepare 
for close hand-to-hand combat as the Israelites and the Philistines are about to do. But I imagine that it is confusing for the senses. In so many ways, the things of life and beauty are springing up all around them. Water is running. The early morning sun rises and warms the backs of the soldiers as they are putting out their breakfast fires. Bees and birds chirp and pollinate nearby plants, and small green trees cover the valley. It's a beautiful scene in the Elah Valley, but there is not peace in the bellies of those Israelite warriors as they stand and get ready for battle. Instead, their bellies are full of anxiety and panic and dread because Saul, their king, has led them here to kill or be killed. King Saul's army is camped out on the hill to the south of the valley and the Philistines to the north. As birds chirp and the wadi babbles and bees pollinate nearby flowers, the minds of the men wander. Has Saul brought us here to die? Will our God triumph over the Philistine gods? Why has Saul brought us here? You know, there's rumors. He is not in his right mind lately. Is this what we had in mind when we begged God for a king? As the men's minds wander, Saul, who stands a foot taller than the rest of them, looks out across the valley, which is no more than a quarter mile long, and he sees the faces of the Philistine warriors. And what is that on their faces? Are they like the Israelites, full of dread and panic and anxiety? No, it's something different. On their faces, Saul looks out across the valley and he sees, is that boredom? Is it apathy? At a time when men set their jaws and tense their shoulders ready for battle, these men across the valley are strangely calm. All Saul, as Saul looks out across the valley, he notices uh, that the, the battle line begins to break. And two men come through the, the formation. One is the shield bearer. He's constantly walking two feet in front of the other, the other man. And behind him, the other man, well, that, that one requires some explanation. First of all, he is enormous. He is, as the Israelites will later describe, something between a man and something else, an in-between man. And as tall as he is, As other as he seems to them, this is not the thing about his appearance that they are most eager to describe to us. In fact, it's actually what he's wearing. He is wearing a coat of armor made of bronze that weighs 5,000 shekels. I've I've learned that uh, about 50 shekels translates to one and a quarter pounds. And so the man is wearing 125 pounds just of bronze, just on his torso. And he has bronze on his helmet and bronze on his legs and bronze between his back. He is wearing so much bronze that as he walks out into the valley, the sun that is rising over the mid, in the mid-morning is reflecting off of it and blinding the Israelite soldiers as they stand to face him. He is holding a spear and javelin. The spear, we are told, is like a weaver's beam. 
I looked into it. I don't know, but it's probably really big. <laughs> a weaver's beam. He has a tip of, a spear is a tip of iron that is 75 shekels in weight. That is about 15 pounds. I looked that up too. It's about the size of a mature dachshund. Just there on the tip of his weaver beam spear. It's huge. But again, it's not his size that the Israelites want to tell us about. It's his armor. It's his weapons. Because they know that they look at their armor and their weapons too, and they don't have anything like it. The giant and the shield bearer are now standing in the middle of the valley. Suddenly, the giant begins to yell, and Saul learns why the Philistines look calm and disinterested. They knew all along there was never going to be a full-on battle. Goliath of Gath, the giant at the center of the valley, puts his hands to his mouth and he shouts, Why have you come to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him, and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and their hearts filled with fear. Saul is dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul has armor, but it's no match for Goliath's. Saul should be the one to answer Goliath's taunting. He is a foot taller than the rest of his men, and he has armor. Saul should be the Israelites' champion, but his heart instead is full of fear, and he is dismayed because of Goliath's bronze and iron. He looks at his own, and it doesn't compare, and he never considers that he has something Goliath never, never will. So he freezes, and day after day, Goliath comes to the center of the valley and he breaks the battle formation and he shouts and he taunts the Israelites. Send me a man who's brave enough. Send me a man who can stand up to me in my armor. You don't have one. Saul thinks that this is a battle about whose weapons are better. This is why Saul can't be king. This is why the Israelites need a new king, someone who will remind them that as God's chosen people, battles are not won with swords and spears. When David arrives, Goliath has been mocking and challenging Saul and his army for days. David hears what's going on and he tells anyone who will listen that he will fight this, this giant. Eventually, word reaches Saul and Saul calls David to his tent. Saul takes one look at David and says, oh, no, 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 no. You are like a teenager. You are just, you're like a boy. And this man of war has been a man of war since he was a boy. This, this won't work. Uh, David says, no, I, I, I can do it. Actually, I have, I've watched after my father's sheep, and any time that a bear or a lion comes and attacks the flock, as it is holding the sheep in its mouth, I grab it by its face, and I beat it till it dies. And God will do the same thing with me and this Philistine. So Saul says, so your plan is you have no plan. And maybe 
uh, Saul didn't need a lot of convincing because immediately he begins putting his armor on David. He begins preparing David to go to battle with the Philistine. Perhaps Saul was just too glad that it wasn't him and he knew all along that he should have been the one. It's funny, though. Uh, Saul thinks that he's going to match Goliath's uh, armor when all along it has been Goliath's armor that has put fear into Saul's heart. Saul thinks that if he matches Goliath's armor on this teenager, that maybe the battle will be won. Goliath has a bronze helmet, so Saul puts one on David. Goliath has bronze coat of armor, so he puts his on David. Saul, uh, Goliath has a sword, so Saul gives one to David. It's funny. There's a giant-sized uh, giant out in the middle of the valley with giant-sized weapons, and Saul thinks that he can send human-sized weapons out to defeat the giant. Saul's only solution is to send a teenager out there with the exact same armor except smaller. This is the moment Saul unwittingly abdicates his throne. But if you know this story, you know that David doesn't face Goliath with the king's weapons. David doesn't fight the giant with Saul's weapons because they won't fit David. Instead, he will go face the giant with a string and some rocks and trust that we might today call foolish because the king's armor won't fit David. The best weapons the world has to offer won't do in this battle. David tries on the armor of the king and it just won't fit. Sometimes the weaponry of this world stops us in our tracks and fills our hearts with fear. We grasp for weapons that we think can match them. And we realize at that moment how weak they are. What does the church do when we realize we are not as practiced as the world in the art of war? Will we surrender to the inevitable option of violence? Will we freeze like Saul and panic and do nothing? Or will we realize that the armor of the empire won't fit us and so go into battle with only trust? I want to tell you about a man who had to learn to trust God. His name is William Campbell, and to this day in the Deep South, he is still called Brother Campbell. Brother Campbell was a good old Baptist minister in Mississippi, and he was forced to make a decision in the 1950s. In 1954, he was the leader of religious life or the chaplain at the University of Mississippi. That's the same year that the Supreme Court handed down the decision we now know as Brown versus the Board of Education. This decision said that any institution receiving state or federal funding could no longer uh, choose who is admitted by race. I probably don't need to tell you that the good folks at Ole Miss did not care all that much what nine judges in Washington had to say to them about how they were going to run their school. And so black people remain uh, not welcome at Ole Miss. But Brother Campbell cared. He soon became at odds with the school's executive board over the stance on their admittance to black students. Brother Campbell felt like he was gearing up for a real David versus Goliath showdown. But after a week or so of this, he was forced to resign. Campbell left Ole Miss and became the first prominent white member in our country's civil rights movement. 
He became a field officer in, the Nashville, in Nashville for the National Council of Churches. He was part of the escort team that walked uh, nine students into Little Rock's Central High School, uh, now known as the Little Rock Nine, as they walked past rows and rows of angry white faces who didn't think that black children should be admitted to their school. He was the only white pastor present when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. established the Southern Christian Leadership Council. I probably don't have to tell you that Brother Campbell faced a lot of opposition. His own family at times questioned his sanity. Um, He was frequently intimidated and even arrested by authorities. He lost friends. And at a time when it was too dangerous to stand up to the armor of the world, Brother Campbell ran to the front lines and risked his own life. For this, he's one of my heroes. I think Brother Campbell and David ask us to, force, to ask difficult questions about ourselves. When other Christians knew that segregation and the Jim Crow laws of the South were antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they looked at what it meant to stand up for justice, and their hearts were filled with fear. They saw the armor of the giant before them, and they were like Saul, They were dismayed, and their hearts were filled with fear. But Brother Campbell is like David. He boldly, maybe foolishly, sees the armor of the giant and runs to pick a fight. David and Brother Campbell are a kind of God-fearers who force us to ask difficult questions. If we were alive at the time of the battle of the Philistines, would we have answered Goliath's call? If I was a minister... In the Mid-South, during the 1950s and 60s, would I have had the courage to speak out against segregation at a time when many churches were defending it? Would I have had the courage to lose my job? How will churches react when faced with obvious and overt evil in the world? Will we be like King Saul and freeze in fear as our hearts grow cold? Or will we be like David and Brother Campbell, who hear the mocking calls of evil in our world, who see the armors and the weapons of the giant, and they run to the front of the battle lines and decide that trust is enough. This is less of a story about an underdog and much, much more of a story about what weapons the people of God will choose when it's time for us to do something hard. When David refused the king's armor, he made his way to the wadi and selected some stones. Stones and a string compared to hundreds of pounds of bronze and armor. I I think it's supposed to be funny. I think we're supposed to laugh at this. With these stones, David walks to the center of the valley. The entire story has been building to this showdown. Goliath makes his speech. He's offended that David is young and handsome. I don't get it. But he's there and he's like, you've sent to me a teenager with a staff. Really? That's all you've got? He says, David, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to watch as the buzzards pick pick apart your bones. Then it's time for David's speech. David says to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth so that all the earth may know that that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know 
that the Lord does not save by sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. The Lord does not save by sword and spear. Then Goliath makes his move towards David. David uh, slings a rock at Goliath, and the rock buries itself in Goliath's head, and Goliath's 125 pounds of armor and his bronze helmet and his spear and his javelin and his sword fall into a worthless heap in the middle of the valley. That armor that once shined so bright, the face that turned towards the Israelites and mocked them is now face down because armor always fails. If you're looking for a detailed and gory version of how David kills Goliath, you're going to have to use your imagination because this story builds up 47 verses of how David isn't going to be enough and isn't going to measure up to Goliath. And then in three verses, Goliath is dead. It is a comical, anticlimactic ending to this buildup. Goliath's great armor is in a useless heap in the middle of the valley because armor always fails because the Lord does not save by sword and spear. I wish David told us how the Lord will save, though. He doesn't. I'm, I'm just afraid that the people of God always have to just stand in front of their own giants before we realize how God is going to reward our faithfulness. One day, Brother Campbell stood in front of a giant of a man. He and other civil rights leaders made their way to Washington, D.C., and they had an appointment with the acting attorney general at the time, a man named Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy was at the time helping lead the country in healing the, the country's racial wounds and doing a good job of it. And so Brother Campbell and his other activists were looking forward to this moment because they had some things to say. It was supposed to be a largely ceremonial meeting, but when it came time for Brother Campbell to speak, he used the opportunity to tell Bobby Kennedy about a previously unreported murder of a black man by an FBI agent in Mississippi. This alarmed, alarmed Robert Kennedy, and so he sent one of his aides to go check it. The aide came back moments later and said, I've just been on the phone with the FBI, and they have no report of any such incident. When Brother Campbell meekly suggested that the FBI may not be so fast in reporting their own murder of an innocent man, Bobby Kennedy raised his voice and he said, it didn't happen. Me and the, attorney, me and the director Hoover of the FBI have an excellent working relationship, and he says it didn't happen. And this, I think, is the beginning of Brother Campbell's slow realization that he had been going about things all wrong. He had been trying to put out a house fire with a torch. He had been trying to go about changing the corrupt laws of this country by using the very corrupt law system itself. It wasn't ever going to work. Brother Campbell had seen the giant and his armor and had been attempting for years to fight that giant with the king's armor only to realize that the armor never fit him. Brother Campbell decided that he would no longer try to change the corrupt laws of the country but try to mend the broken hearts of the people who have suffered by those laws. So Brother Campbell will never be credited with ending segregation or racial Jim Crow laws of our country, but he became what he called a pastor without a steeple. He went around everywhere he could trying to mend the broken hearts of people. He would go to Klan rallies and baptize Klansmen and have them 
convince them that they should take off their robes. He would go to black colleges and he would say things like, Jesus loves black people and Klansmen. He might hate the Klan, but if he loves one, he loves them all. And for this, Brother Campbell was sometimes ostracized and seen no longer as a a person of the movement. But I believe that people like Brother Campbell went around and did more for people in this country whose hearts were broken by poverty and injustice than he would have if he would have spent his entire life sitting in the halls of power. Because the church doesn't fit into the armor of the king. We have to do things differently. The Lord does not save by sword and spear or hate or corruption or intimidation or sarcastic social media posts or condensation or lying or bribery or abuse. These are the weapons of the empire and they won't fit the church. Today is the church's birthday. It's Pentecost Sunday. Today is the day we celebrate a small group of people who faced death at every turn and decided that the armor of this world just wouldn't fit. The church survived persecution and impossible odds because, inspired by Jesus, they refused to go up against the evil empire by using the very weapons of that empire. Instead, we are here today because they prayed, because they welcomed the stranger, and because they healed the sick. And against all odds, they survived. And they became us. Because the armor of the empire won't fit the church. And because the Lord does not save by sword and spear. The question is, will we continue their legacy? Will the church decide that the weapons of empire won't fit us? Or will we try to match their armor and so, like Saul, freeze in fear? The Lord does not save by sword and spear. So how will God win our battles? We won't know until he does. And we, the only thing we can bring, the only thing we've ever really had, the only stone we have to sling is trust that the battle belongs to the Lord. And this morning, I want us to hear a voice, a voice ringing through the ages. A voice that was there at the battle of the valley of Allah and remembers it quite well. A voice that says to us, the Lord will not win by sword or by spear, but that the church exists and survives and thrives because we trust God. The Lord answer you in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your victory and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord will help his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories by his right hand. Some take pride in chariots and some in horses, but our pride is in the name of the Lord our God.